I think of myself as an actress and I know how to present things. I know how to hold the audience. I know how to make it colorful and give the food a chance to be known for what it is by my acting techniques that I can use when I'm presenting things. So I've never really thought of myself as a cook or a chef. I never call myself a chef. Madha Jaffrey is, depending upon who you are and who you ask, an actress with a sweeping range of stage and cinematic roles who really got going with 1965's James Ivory-directed Shakespeare Waller, or she's a TV cook who forever changed the way Britain eats with her pioneering BBC series Indian Cookery from the early 1980s and its accompanying best-selling book of the same name. It doesn't have to be that complicated, though. She says that she's an actress who played a lot of different parts. I've always been suspicious of my cookery career, she said. Jaffrey was born in Delhi in 1933, the fifth of six children who played in the gardens and orchards on the banks of the Yamuna River. After Indian stage and radio work, she went to London to study drama at Radha and found the food to be grey. Her mother sent her heavily edited recipes by airmail and the young Madha tracked around the capital trying to find the right spices. That would come in handy after time spent in New York working as an actress where Ishmael Merchant introduced her to a food writer in the New York Times. Before long, Knopf had published her first book of recipes, An Introduction to Indian Cooking. In the UK, the BBC were on the hunt for someone to front an Indian cooking programme, and the rest will have to be history. Multiple series and the invention of the tie-in cookbook later, Madha Jaffrey is still acting and cooking at the age of 90. I'm Robert Bounds, and I spoke to Madha Jaffrey on The Big Interview. Madho, uh, it's wonderful to have you on the programme today, on the big interview. It's an honour to be in your company for the next half an hour. I understand that you're on the cusp of, a, of an important birthday. And I wondered, as we have the experts on the line, what will you be cooking or what will you be having cooked for your birthday lunch, I wonder? I think you're slightly behind. <laughs> I've had my birthday. I have turned 90. And I've had my birthday party already. It was a beautiful occasion. It was absolutely perfect summer day. And we were outside and my kids had arranged everything for the food and had arranged the flowers on the table and it looked beautiful. And so we sat on our patio, which faces west and is made of brick. And we sat on this lovely table with a flowered summery tablecloth and had our meal and people gave little talks and speeches and they were just my family. There was no one else but my family and my closest friends, about four or five of them. And that was it. And that is what I wanted. I want small, intimate party. It sounds magical. And you, you it sounds a little bit like something I read recently that you wrote in The New Yorker about growing up and about being kids in an orchard in your old family home in Delhi, where you were as a child, where you were born, where the older kids were in the tops of the trees and the younger children were in the bottoms of the trees and they were being fed different sort of different fruits from the trees and all the rest of it. It sounds like a shout back to something as intimate as that. Do you have it, it these was. sort of food memories that go through your entire absolutely, life? Absolutely, absolutely. From the very beginning, I have food memories from the moment I was born. And I don't remember this, but I was told the story so many times that I feel <laughs> I remember it, that when I was born, I think it's the custom in our house 
for the oldest person, a woman, usually a grandmother, in case it was my grandmother, who comes into the room because you're born at home. And we lived in this lovely big house overlooking the river, the Yamuna River in Delhi. And our room faced the river uh, where I was and where I was born. And my grandmother came in and she dipped her finger, her little finger in a jar of honey, and then wrote the word Om in Sanskrit on my tongue. And apparently I licked my lips and opened my mouth for more. And that's the story that was told. So eventually when I was to be named, and there were all kinds of names that the priest suggested, and my father said, no, she's going to be called Madhur. Madhu is honey. And Madhur means sweet as honey. So I was named after what I had to eat for the very first time. <laughs> I love that. Other interview shows, Madhura, would, would say, and the rest is history at this point. We'll resist that temptation, possibly. Yes, yes. Let's Please. do it. Um, <laughs> I wonder, as we're kind of in and around your home in New York City, at least in a radio kind of way, um, at the beginning of this interview, Madhura, whether you can invite us into your kitchen briefly and let us know, just I'm sure people would love to know what your most used utensils have been over the years and maybe a couple of spices that are the things that you cannot do without that are always on call in your kitchen. Well, certainly certain pots and pans and my cast iron frying pan is a must. I use that a lot for a lot of things. Then to make my Indian breads and griddles uh, and pancakes and things like that, I have bought what is you know you know what a tava is a tava is a griddle on which you make your breads and it's usually cast time well now india has changing too and it has its modern versions of everything so i now have a, a non-stick griddle which can make pancakes and they will never stick they're so easy to do so i love indian pancakes i absolutely adore them I like pancakes made out of beans of various sorts, beans that I soak overnight and then make into a batter. And then I make my pancakes and eat them with lovely Indian cauliflower and potatoes. Oh, I'm getting so hungry just <laughs> talking. <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> so I, I, that is one of the things I use rather a lot. I like my nonstick pans. Now, these are newer things in the sense that I didn't start out. Nobody started out with non-stick pans, but I like good quality non-stick pans. I like good quality spatulas and all kinds of things for taking things out of either watery sources or oil, all kinds of spoons, slotted spoons, and different kinds of spoons that remove food from where they are being cooked, often leaving the sauce behind or taking the sauce with it. So I use a lot of those. And I have gadgets that I love. I like my gadget that slices into thin slices by the potatoes, or it could be courgette or anything like that. When I'm wanting to slice things, I like my little slicer. It's like a mandolin, but now you have modern Japanese versions of it that work much quicker and faster. <laughs> so I love that, <laughs> that as well. <laughs> then I have... You know, like this season, my tomatoes just went wild and I had so many wonderful tomatoes. 
So I was constantly making a sauce out of the tomatoes. But then to get the, the last bits out of the sauce, first you cook tomatoes for a long time till they you know, get thick. And then you put them through a, a press. So I have this moly press, it's the French press, mm -hmm. that you push the liquid out of. And I love that. And that tomato sauce for me, these days I have a lot of yellow tomatoes, which I like eating a mango egg. So they're mango-like, especially when they're concentrated, they become even more mango-like. So I'm making, using that sauce a lot for cooking dishes, various dishes. Even if I'm cooking potatoes, I will put a little bit of that in it. So it will have that lovely sweet, sour mango flavor, which I love. Well, I can hear the smacking of lips internationally, Madhur, uh, at that. I can feel people in this, in this radio show's podcast version, people pausing it now and rushing off to the kitchen, or at least, at least to get a notepad and a pencil to write all this down. It seems we'll come on to, well, well, maybe we can address this now. One of the reasons we're talking today is the republishing of your Indian cookery, Madhur Jaffrey's Indian cookery. I have, a, I have right. my mother's version of it in front of me here in the desk in the studio at Midori House in London. And it seemed that your and the accompanying BBC TV programme, a series that went with it, you're talking very much about um, being lulled into some sort of sense of ritual, the way that you're talking about food. But your way of presenting it on screen a few years ago was quite straightforward. It was less in the ritual and more in the, in the instructive. Did you have to choose at the time, you and your producers, or simply you yourself as the cook and as the presenter, to, be, to choose a path, to choose the instructive over the ritualistic and the sort of romantic? Perhaps you got more romantic as the years went on and people came to know your face and your voice and the way that your recipes came across on the television. Well, first of all, I don't think I'm romantic. If you think so, that's good. <laughs> but I, I don't see myself as romantic. So I have to say that I had the most wonderful producer and director, Jenny Rogers and Jenny Stevens of the BBC. To them, it came naturally. The whole thing came naturally. And they chose me, I think, because I'm actually an actress and I know how to convey the love of food not only by my actions, but the way I present it. I think it is, I think the acting is what does a lot of it. And then in the hot oil that's left, I'm going to put in 10 whole cardamom pods, six whole cloves and an inch piece of cinnamon. Stir them around for a few seconds like this, and then put in onions. This is seven ounces of finely chopped onions. And into this hot mixture of onions and spices, I'm going to put in that spice paste that I made earlier with the almonds in it. So here in goes this delicious spice paste with almonds, all of it. And I'm going to give that a very good stir. Now it's important that this paste be browned slightly. Every stage, again, of the sauce making requires a little bit of browning. So on a high flame, I'm going to stir this around until it gets lightly browned. And I think they chose me for that reason, that I can imagine what people are seeing, what people are watching and how they're reacting. And I can somehow cater 
to that. I wasn't thinking really of anything special when I was doing the programs. I just saw it as a way that I wanted to get to people's hearts. I just didn't want them to listen with their ears and see with their eyes. I wanted the food to mean something to them as it meant to me. And I think that was what I was probably trying to convey, that this is delicious food. And this is something we eat every day with great love and with great passion. And I know that you all are admirers of Indian food, but you're not getting the real stuff. Wait till you get the real stuff. You will love it even more. I think <laughs> that is what I was trying to convey. And a nation of turmeric-stained fingers agreed with you, <laughs> I, I, I can assure you. So many people have come to me with their books all stained and asked me to sign them, and I'm so proud of the stained books and them. I mean, they've worked hard to learn this, and I take my hat off to them. Yeah, because, well, I said, and, and in that era, Madhur, as, as you know, being the face of this series and, and countless series thereafter and, and the wildly successful books as well, you were teaching, in my case, English people, British people to do something that they might have been resistant to or they might have been scared of. There was a curry house culture that had grown up yes. Uh, yes. since the 1950s and, and a little bit earlier in, in rarefied circumstances, I suppose, Indian food. And I wonder how, whether you felt that was a door, you were pushing against an open door there or whether there was a bit of resistance. I mean, we should say this is a very Googleable thing, but your series at the outset had plus of two million viewers and your cookbooks were wildly successful so maybe that answers the question but I wonder how you felt no, at the time. I, I, I have another thing to say that I'm a great reader and I know history will tell you and the British know in their minds and hearts and in their skin they know that they have been in India since the East India Company was formed which was 1600 AD and they have had a relationship with Indians and Indian food that has changed over the years, over the centuries, but it has been present. And there are a lot of people who either lived with Indian women or married Indian women. And there's a culture of sort of mixing in a way that is recognized and not recognized. So there's always been this fascination with Indian food. And I think early on, they brought pretty authentic recipes from India. If you look at the 17th century and 18th century, they're perfectly wonderful recipes that people were passing around and learning how to cook. And then they began to simplify it as the 19th century came and women went out and joined their husbands. The whole thing began to change. And the recipes got more anglicized and there was a whole emphasis on the so-called curry and rice. And things began to look different in the Victorian era because even Queen Victoria had Indian food cooked for her. But it just began to take a slightly anglicized form. So we've seen Indian food go through the ages and change, starting quite authentic and quite real and getting slowly anglicized and curryfied, if I may say, use the words, because when they wanted it simplified, they needed a simple mixture of spices that they could just throw in and not have to bother with turmeric and cumin and coriander and, you know, a hundred different things. They just said, 
Can't I just put a spoon of something and make it easy for myself? <laughs> and I think that is how the curry started. But I think what they had in their own backgrounds and what they went back to, I think when I started presenting my programs, was the real Indian food. They knew about it once and they were learning it again. I like that idea that there was a sort of a folk tradition almost in the Engl- in the British mindset that was sympathetic to, attracted to the idea of India and, and Indian food, Madhur. I think that's, that's yes. yeah, there's certainly something in that. And I'd like to give our listeners a sense of how, how you came to the UK. You came to study drama at no lesser an institution than RADA. The yes. food, obviously, <laughs> I feel, I'm not well, old enough to have to personally apologise for this, but uh, no, you, but nonetheless, you I, I know the food stank in that in that uh, time. Well, so. I'll, I'll tell you what you should apologise for. You should apologise for the smog. We had this <laughs> green, pea green smog at three o'clock every afternoon. But anyway, my town at Rada was very exciting. I'd never been to a drama school. I was really learning how to get to my true self in I had wonderful teachers at Rada, and they were really helping me. However, the canteen, we had to eat, and the canteen was on the fifth floor, so we had to walk up five flights of stairs and go to the canteen, where, as you know, and I've written this a million times, there was this roast beef that was sort of gray and cabbage, watery cabbage and watery potatoes, and that's when I would look at that food and dream about Indian food, the freshness of it and how it was cooked every day the vegetables were shining straight from the garden vegetables that we were eating and I dreamed about that food and I started writing to my mother and saying can you teach me how to cook and she wrote me these little air letters which are now I've written about a dozen times little air letters with three line recipes they weren't really elaborate recipes But here's the wonderful thing is that I remembered how they tasted. And so when I started cooking, I could adjust and then add a bit more of this and a bit more of that to make it taste like it tasted when I ate it at home. And I think that was a wonderful thing for me to discover that I had somehow recorded the tastes in my head and that I could call on them and say, okay, what was the taste of this potatoes cooked with cumin and asafoetida, and how do I make it? And my mother's recipes were a hint towards the real recipe, but my memory filled in the gaps, you know, my taste memory filled in the gaps. And I think that happens with a lot of chefs, that they have a good palate, and because they have a good palate, they are recording in their minds, in their brains, whatever they're tasting, and they can record it. You know, When I go shopping and let's say I'm going to a grocery store and I want to buy something and I see very, very good green beans, then my mind starts thinking, okay, shall I make it with mustard seeds and cumin seeds and a little bit of ginger and a little lemon juice? And I try that, taste it, literally taste it in my mouth. I say, no, maybe I want a little tomato today, simpler, maybe just tomato and shallots and maybe a little bit of lime juice and ginger, maybe that's all I want. So I keep tasting different versions of the beans that I intend to cook, and I pick which I want before as I'm looking at the beans, and that's what I come home and make. So this business of really tasting before you're cooking 
is a very important thing. And all chefs know that they can all do it. I'm not the only one. Well, I'd love to ask you about taste memory, because I know you've written and I know you've been asked about that before, but it's a wonderful concept. Before we yes. go there, Madhara, I'd like to just ask you about these three line recipes that came in, in, in airmail letters from your mum in Delhi. That must have been a wonderful exercise in how to write recipes concisely, I suppose, as well from her. I mean, they might have been slightly <laughs> sort of bastardized versions of the luxuriant real thing, perhaps, but they are brilliant exercises. And if you have to suddenly start doing dinner parties or simply fend for yourself in this smog-ridden new city, <laughs> uh, yeah. they're exercises in short and sweet, I suppose, these recipes. How, how much did they change, your mother's recipes change, to become the recipes? that you you went on to, to cook, to publish, and to broadcast to millions of people? Quite a lot. Because, you know, I realized that I could do it and other chefs might be able to do it. But I was writing for people who didn't cook or didn't cook Indian food. So I made them so detailed that they could not go wrong. This was my dream, is to make them make it so it tasted as good as mine. You know... People ask chefs, do you tell them everything? Do you want their recipes to be as good as yours? I said, I tell them everything and more. I want their recipes to be so good that they don't ever, can never go wrong. So I will describe in great detail how to slice the onions, how thin they should be. And then when you put them in oil, you keep frying. No, don't stop. I want them to be really browner. So keep going. It'll take you about 10 minutes. So I give these kind of details because I want them to do it perfectly. I want them to get it right. And they won't, if I don't hold their hand and tell them everything I know and the timing of it and the heat, is it medium heat? Is it high heat? People don't tell you that. And you need to know, am I cooking this on very low heat? Or do I have to have medium high heat to get this to this right temperature in these number of minutes that I've been given to do this. So this all helps to get the final dish as perfect as possible. And we should say, meanwhile, colon, yeah. you you started, <laughs> you, all this was going on and you landed a fantastic role in Shakespeare Waller and you took off as, a, as an actress playing, <laughs> I won't say to type, but playing an actress in yes. that very well-known movie. How easy was it then and how easy has it been over the years, Madhav, to juggle, to have at least these two juggling balls in the air at all times, the cookery and the acting, I wonder? Well, in my mind, I never juggled. I was always an actress. I was never a cook, in my mind. So I played the part of a cook, but I wasn't a cook. I never thought of myself as such and I still don't. I think of myself as an actress, and I know how to present things. I know how to hold the audience. I know how to make it colorful and give the food a chance to be known for what it is by my acting techniques that I can use when I'm presenting things. So I've never really thought of myself as a cook or a chef. I never call myself a chef. I have no training whatsoever. When I'm cutting onions, I cut them very slowly. I'm not a chef. I don't chop, 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 chop. I don't know how to do that. I chop slowly. I'm a housewife that cooks. 
<laughs> it's generous of you to make that distinction, Matto. I'm sure a million people around the world, a billion people would disagree with you, but we have it on good authority from the horse's mouth, so we're fine with that. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so, you, I mean, these recipes were sent from your mother and you were a young, aspiring actress. You were a drama student in London at that time. Did someone nurture your acting in the same way? You said you had great tutors and, and teachers at RADA. I, I, I wonder if you teachers. had a similar situation with anyone that was kind of doing it in a colloquial way like your mother was with the recipes I wonder yes there certainly was there was a teacher I think she was originally from South Africa and she taught me to find my real voice I think I had a higher pitched voice to begin with and she there was a, a set of exercises that she made us do where you relaxed more and more and more and spoke from your diaphragm eventually deep down from the middle of your body. And the things you say sound so different when you're saying them from the center of your body as opposed to from your throat. And your voice changes, you become, you sound honest and you are honest because you're not speaking from the top of your head, you're speaking from your guts. And I think if you can teach someone that, then you can teach them to be an honest actress. I think that comes across. I think that's great advice, sage advice, Madho, as well. And, that, and that's the kind of advice that never goes out of fashion, right? It's no, always, it doesn't. Always it's sound best. like yourself. And did this? Did the were these skills directly translated to? I think there were Monday evenings on BBC Two, probably at about eight o'clock in the evening that your first series went out. Did you pour? Did you stir, did you prepare a similar curry mix in terms of how to present this programme? Did you take those skills from RADA or was it easy? Was it as easy as it looks on the television for you? It was almost as easy as it looks. However, there were a lot of technical things that could go wrong. For example, I remember I had soaked rice and left it, uh, drained it then and left it in the sieve. And it had sort of packed down, which I hadn't realized. And when I started putting it into the pot, first it wouldn't, nothing fell out out of the sieve into the pot at all for a few seconds. And then it went all over the place because it had packed down slightly. So we had to do it again. So there were some mishaps like that, that we weren't prepared for. But on the whole, I think there were a few mishaps because we rehearsed it. I think we rehearsed it several times, first cold, then in the studio, and then we actually did it. So we had got the kinks out before the show went on. And as I said, I had a wonderful director and producer, and they helped me a lot. And you you look so great on the TV. It It was not a normal thing to see an Indian lady preparing food on television screens in the UK as it wouldn't be in the United States as well. And your look was true to your roots, but not a, if I may say, a pantomime version of that. You seemed very, it seemed like absolute reality. You standing there and instructing people kindly and imaginatively how to make these wonderful dishes. Was okay. was there anyone that's tried to push you in a particular direction or was that all of your own making as well? That the look... look- The look was pretty much my making because Indians were not really respected. When you went out on the street, people said things, you know, that weren't very good. You didn't want to hear them particularly. And I think it was 
before people started calling people Pakis, it was before that. But still, there was that tension in the streets when you walked along. And Indians weren't particularly respected or looked up to. And I was a very suave, fashion-conscious young lady. I like good clothes. And I chose wonderful textiles for my own self. I just like that. I'm that sort of person. I love good textiles. I love wearing good textiles. I think India is fabulous. Uh, all kinds of clothing in it's fabulous cloth. So I chose to wear clothes that I would normally wear. That was my own fashion sense of what I would wear as an elegant Indian woman. And I wanted to come across as I really was. So people saw that this is uh, this is an Indian. And look at her. Do we like the way she looks? I mean, this wasn't conscious. But I think in the back of my head was this, I'm a proud Indian. I love the way I dress. I like my clothes. I like my textiles. And that is what I'm going to be in for all the shows. And I think people like the food. But I think there was also a growing respect for the Indian the person, the Indian person that was in the streets and in everybody's neighbor. Yeah, there, it's, there, there's a sort of accidental responsibility that you sort of took yes. on with that, with that, with that, not role, because the role was yours, but that job, I suppose, yes. Madhara, that you yes. suddenly were representing something beyond simply your own person and your own surname, right. I suppose. Yeah. Right, right. I think I was aware, not too consciously aware, but really aware of that all along. And I'd like to come back as we finish up to that idea you had of, you mentioned it yourself, taste memory, uh, which is a wonderful idea. And you start in the introduction to this, well, this republished book. I've got the original version here in front of me, talking about all the differences of your schoolmates when you were a schoolgirl in Delhi and Muslims and Hindus and, and Sikhs and Jains. And you had a Syrian friend who was a Christian from Kerala, I believe. What a mashup. And it seems that you could all agree on food. Obviously, India has India is changing with every day as well, as England is in the United States, which is your home at the moment. But is it food that brings everyone together? Is that what you meant in the introduction to that book those years ago? Does that still hold true? If so, I wonder. Well, food is a common thing that we all love. And I think that even though the Muslim tradition and the Sikh tradition and the Syrian Christian tradition, they're all different in terms of food. There's a commonality. We either eat bread or we eat rice. And we eat it with something spicy. And that spicy something could be anything. It could be a meat, it could be a vegetable, it could be legumes or whatever it is. But we like, I always liked other people's food because I was so used to mine eating it every day and what my family made. So I love to delve into the different carriers of uh, go deep into them and get other people's foods much more. And they did the same. They went into mine, into, you know, their neighboring friends, different carriers. And we loved eating each other's food. And we were friends. So this was a combination of our growing up friendship, having fun as friends and sharing food. Food is for sharing. Food is something that you eat together. It's a communal activity. It can be a solo activity. But we are more used to in India to have it as a communal activity, which everyone joins. And you, in a way, emphasize 
not only your commonality and your love for each other, but also your love for food, all food. And uh, and if like you were, grew up as a as a Hindu, you just eat the beef and pretend you didn't know what it was once you've <laughs> once you've smacked no, your lips. <laughs> I, I I didn't mind. I I I never cared. <laughs> uh, it made them. It wasn't cooked in my home, but I certainly ate it whenever. And my father didn't object. We had a mm. a father who was very tolerant. Half his friends were Muslim anyway. And we had a tradition in our family that the many members of the family had worked in the Mughal courts and the men all spoke Persian during that period. So we had a Hindu-Muslim tradition that went side by side in my particular family. So it wasn't hard for me at all. Well, amen to that as well. Madha Jeffrey, too bad. We'll catch up with you next time we're in New York City to sign the book. Thank you for, right. for talking us through your taste memories and so much more besides. And uh, sorry we missed your, your big birthday there, but uh, cards, oh, in, no. cards in the post. I was there. So that was the important <laughs> thing. <laughs> Bye-bye and thank you so much. Thank you, Madha. Madha Jeffrey, thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle Radio. That is it for this edition of The Big Interview. It's produced by Emma Searle and edited by Jack Dewars. From me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye.